Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. And we will be dealing with Russian Alaska today. But before we do that, we have to take a look at Russian Siberia, because that's how they expanded towards Russian Alaska. And that's a story in its own. And I've acquired myself a bunch of scientific articles for this matter, because we will be going through a lot of this. And uh, I took the liberty to use original sources in Russian for a lot of this stuff, but where other things will come in, then I will mention them, obviously. That's kind of um, the interesting part of all the situation, because I read the book on Russian Alaska and understood that before we even, even go there, we need to talk about Russian Siberia and what they did there and how they even moved towards Alaska, and I think it's very interesting to take a look at how various people wrote about this and what's been the traditional look from the western part of this. For example, I am going to quote R. James Ferguson here from his 2008 lectures, where he uh, spoke about international relations, and I'm going to be using his lecture 7, Siberia, the Russian Far East and the Future Land. I'm going to be looking at some Russian emigre articles from the UK who are very critical on the situation, we'll start with that even. We'll be looking at a paper by Peter C.B. Armstrong from Dalhousie University, Nova Scotia from August 1987 who will take us into the Muscovy's expansion to Western Siberia, his paper, and I'm really happy about my uh, university paper still working uh, then we're going to be looking at Martin Oss' paper, Russia and Siberia. We're also going to be looking at a paper that I got from Hokkaido University, which is uh, weird, uh, written by Dmitry Shin Bazil in 1980, which is called Russian Expansion into the Pacific, a historiographical review, so that you understand all of my sources. However, he's written that paper for Portland State University, but it's from Hokkaido. 
and we're also going to be taking a look from a lecture from Russian Empire to Eurasian Power from the Department of International Relations from Queensland, Australia, which is another uh, lecture by James Ferguson, R. James Ferguson, except this time from 2003. We're going to combine all these because before we get into the crazy fun stuff of Russian Alaska, which is going to be quite interesting because it's all about organized crime and craziness and, well, rebels being sent there, we need to take a look at how Russia expanded into Siberia, how they got to Alaska, and how all of this, their massive expanses and vast tracts of land, impacted them and their advances during the Cold War and what political effect it has still today and why is this important. Because, well, as much as I want to get out of the complete politics of the day, I want to look at both scholars from the Russia itself and from, well, ex-Soviet Union, but I also want to look at Western scholars approaching uh, these problems. Uh, I'm giving you all, the, all these infos and all these names, like, straight away. I'll be quoting them and I'll put the links up in this comment section and uh, I'll publish them alongside this episode so that you can go and read for yourselves. But in this weird time of COVID and various political crises, I think, you know, I think it might be good to just do something as far uh, from, well, various modern situations as possible. Although some of these things mentioned here still have an impact. And I would like to start by quoting you, apart from this, I'm, I'm just rewarding the article here, and I have analyzed this, because there is this Trans-Siberian experience, which comes from the blog transsiberian.co.uk, and this is an article written in 2017. This is about how people who apparently were Russian people from Siberia themselves, who have moved to UK, how they describe their whole situation. Which is quite interesting, because yeah, like I said, I'm going to be paraphrasing the article, and and all of this is a kind of a mishmash of my own personal comments, and the information that I've acquired, but let's see why all of this is relevant. Because I know, I know that a lot of my, specifically United States listeners, their craziness is happening in your country, but I hope it'll all settle down, and that this show is going to give you some possibility to, well, not think about all those major issues, at least for a bit. But, quoting from the article, <clears throat> Following the defeat of the last Mongol Khan, Tsarist expansion into Siberia and the East took the predictably ghastly form of conquest and subjugation. Western Russia arrived as a conqueror and enforcer, determined to stamp its authority upon the indigenous tribes of the many far-reaching regions that lay before them. Fierce and capable Cossack forces were outriders, leading the way into new territories, establishing outpost forts, and ensuring that a set quantity of fur tributes, or yasak, from the natives was maintained in the process. All for the honor and profit of Siberia's new imperial rulers. That was standard practice throughout all the conquests, as Irina on Great Russian Gifts points out, quote, All of the Russian leaders from Vladimir the Blessed, or St. Vladimir, to the modern Russian leaders, have demanded tributes paid to the Russian leadership in exchange for economic cooperation and peaceful political silences. A strange, brutally enforced peace, then. End quote. Basically, these people who are Russians, as you would call them today, but they come from these Siberian regions, they have their own... Um, 
perspective on this, and we'll look at the mainstream perspective here, I just wanted to give the tribes, the so-called minorities, the right of first speech, so to speak, so that we would know their position of all the situation. And these people often in their documents write uh, that the initial tactic of the Russian Empire was try to make locals an offer they couldn't refuse, something akin to, we're in control now, give us everything we want from the ground upwards or else. Because, you know, Russians were pragmatic people, and while launched into a costly attack, the natives were prepared to simply roll over. Of course, the acceptance of such a proposal would be no guarantee of, well, frankly, anything. And brutal serfdom also happened, but hey, brutal serfdom and uh, 17th, 18th centuries, yeah, that's, that's par for the course. And uh, many of the tribes there were not prepared to consider such an outrage in any case, regardless of, well, relative technologies, weapons, or... Uh, supposed, and uh, quoting an article here, and they literally put it in quotes, civilization. So basically refusal and catastrophe would often follow because, well, the Russian explorers arrive, plant their flag, and stuff happens. Like I said, we'll get into details, we'll get into historiography here, I just, that uh, in light of, well, everything, wanted to give this from an experience of um, the local tribes living there, and this is not a scientific article, this is a journalist article who wrote about their experiences and what is their tradition. And, yeah, apparently, slowly through violence and cruelty committed over decades against the, these indigenous peoples, the Tsar's Cossacks carved their way into the East. In return for the tributes, and again, this is from the perspective of the Chukchi people and the Aventi people and everyone who lived there, quote, <clears throat> In return for the tributes and forced or refused compliance, the interlopers brought quote-unquote gifts of their own. Murder, torture, rape, a remarkably prolific and often unmentioned weapon of war, slavery, well, in this case, served them, I think, but maybe sometimes brutal slavery as well, theft, the acquisition of land resources, which is, again, theft, unknown and horrific forms of disease, notably introduction of um, smallpox to the Siberians, and all this was just upon the Siberian people in rage of perceived slights. And then the Christianity came, which, well, that's why their shamanistic tradition is still going on there, if you remember I spoke about one such shaman. And this article then compares them to, with European colonizers, except where all these conquests of European colonies happened way earlier, or in case of subjugation and race for or scramble for Africa, Kind of much later, this is where extra cruelty happened because, and we'll get to this point later, the Mongol tribes, the Mongolians, if you've well, listened to Dan Carlin's uh, The Han series, then you'll know that this is kind of the area, the steppe part, and above them, the Siberian part, where the Mongols came from, where they united the steppes. But cutting on from the tribal perspectives, Cossack staging posts, initially kind of forts, were established with eastwards push. From here, acquisitive bids could then be launched into new tribal territories whilst seized land was simultaneously defended. Those posts grew from forts into cities and towns and still remain excellent today. Tumen was built in 1586 and Tobolsk in 1587, the latter becoming the ancient Siberian capital and center of operations for the Russian expansion as a whole. To the north, Beryozova, which is now several territories, and... Mangazieva, which uh, was built somewhere between 1593 to 1601, allowed the conquest of the Nenets tribes. And many other cities were established 
that aided the suppression of uh, the other tribes. And so they continued. The Daur tribe experienced a half century of murder. The Amur people uh, knew the invading Cossacks as Lobochka, or demons, these being the only tile that equated with the sheer depth of, well, barbarity displayed. And again, this is from the tribal, well, sort of tribal. Tribal might be offensive term from the people who lived there before the Russians uh, took over Siberia and colonized all of that from their Muscovy and other central regions people's perspective. We'll get to other perspectives soon. But then the article quotes, <clears throat> quote, The Koryak, Kamchadal, Chukchi, Iltemen, Vogulas, Aleuts, and Yakut peoples experienced prolonged slaughter and abuse, a mere precursor to the rape, slavery, and meat-hook impalement inflicted upon the latter when Yasak tributes were not upheld. Many more, not mentioned in the article, according to these people, apparently suffered immensely and imaginably. I tend to believe this, but, well, as any colonial expansionist policy, this is to be expected. The colonial powers are, let's just say, not kind to the people colonized, and even though we will be talking specifically in this episode about the Russian colonial efforts, and this being the Russian Empire, let's not forget that when, you, when you're talking about this, that the British and the French and other colonial powers, they weren't really much softer, to be honest. Colonialism was a thing that basically made the metropolis rich upon the blood and sweat of the people who live there, and, well, we in Latvia kind of got lucky as we were quote-unquote colonized and civilized in the early 13th century and then just turned into serfs. So we, uh, we got lucky as being conquered at the time where um, industrial oppression of the peoples were not really a thing yet which is um, a good thing, kind of. But that's just my perspective, and which is also why I'm giving you the perspective of the indigenous peoples there. The combined slaughter was often genocidal in its prolonged frosty and toll. About 40% uh, population loss of these uh, indigenous peoples happened, but that's on average. In a lot of cases, complete eradication of whole indigenous groups by the mid-19th century happened. And that's the human cost alone. Wildlife was also utterly destroyed, principally for furs, because, you know, everyone loved fur hats, and that was kind of crazy. But it didn't go completely as desired for the Cossack-led Russian expansion, though. Amazingly, rather than gardening defeat, the ongoing brutal assault against the Chukchis only strengthened the resolve and frosty against the Cossack-Russian oppression. Despite an explicit order from Empress Elizabeth of Russia to commit absolute and complete genocide against them and the Koryak people in 1742, because, yes, back in the uh, mid-18th century, you know, your empresses and kings could just declare, kill everyone, and no one cared. The Chukchis kind of, you know, resisted. As you, well, should when a genocide is declared against your nation. Chukchis managed to capture and kill Russian commander Major Dmitry Pavlutsky, forcing the abandonment of an entire imperial campaign. Joining forces with other tribes, Chukchis were collectively able to arrive Russian presence from their own regions, at least by 1746. But the Russians came back, and today there is little evidence of those early Siberian genocides, and that is no accident, of course, but that is still enough disseminated documented knowledge, so that along with other quote-unquote civilized barbarities, these things can't be forgotten. That is how the Chukchi people themselves remember all this, because I wanted to mention this part as we'll be going into truly weird stories and dark and interesting stories. And we'll be looking at various expansion periods, and we'll be delving into the craziness and basically 
while Russian Far East and Russian Alaska turned into something of mosaicely and like crazy pitch of villainy and, and, and weird stuff happening there. But it is of utmost importance to understand that for the people living there and for the indigenous people, all of this often came at the cost of their homes, lives, and brutality. And I think it is important to remember this today. It's kind of like, you know, I also have tribal ancestors and uh, I believe that it is just fair to mention what happened to other people. But moving on from this kind of um, sad part of, of all the situation, from all the academical articles, let's go to a bit more clinical description and how everything happened, well, step by step, in a way. Let's talk firstly about how this whole expansion into Western Siberia started. Then we'll move into Eastern Siberia, and then we'll get to Alaska itself. Because Alaska is, like I said, the fun part of all this episode, but I thought, you know, that Russians didn't just plop in into Alaska. First, they went from Moscow, and then they moved further east. So, let's take a look at the first part of all this situation, how Russia even moved into the Siberian plains. You see, when you think about it, then, well, one of the defining features of all of the 16th and 17th century Europe was basically the expansion of states to everywhere. They wanted to colonize and spam out their own empires everywhere. And the primary kind of motivation for any state engaged in the exploration and acquisition of new territories was, well, economic. People wanted new lands. However, the colonial nations of the early modern period did not really rely on their businessmen and merchants to conduct and manage all this stuff, these affairs of the empire. They, they were the prurial men who just went there and did stuff, but it wasn't just that. Each of the colonial nations had, well, at this disposal, various state and civilian institutions. And the skills and the resources which could be directed towards managing and exploiting the colonies as the governing authority in the mother country, well, really saw fit and it depended on the mother country. The role of any given institution would play in this weird colonial context. This varied, obviously, from nation to nation and was dependent as much on the time, place and circumstances, you know, tempus locus dramatis persona, as we were taught in the historiography classes, under which each of these peoples and organizations and loose things was expected to fulfill its role and, of course, depended on the goals and ambitions on institutions. An institution that frequently participated in the colonial expansion of the European states was, well, the church. And, you know, you don't have to look much further, at least few Westerners don't have to look much further as, what was this, Bartolomeu de las Casas guy in, uh, from the Spanish part? And, well, look at the Puritans coming in. The church always facilitated um, colonization, too. And at this point, we are also going to look at the Orthodox Church. Because, though not always viewed as a colonial state in this case, because it's all single landmass, they still had uh, their own colonial policy, and we'll be looking at uh, at least how they did it in Western Siberia. Because Orthodox Church on Moscow's frontier also did uh, quite a few things, after everyone else had come in and uh, did their own things, like I mentioned in the previous article. And I think this is, um, this is quite important to note, because right now, Russian Orthodox Church, 
holds a lot more power in Russia than, well, any other organized religion uh, holds in other Christian countries, I think. Even the United States of America, which is considered very Christian, I doubt that there's any centralized official church happening there. Well, at least from my visits, I haven't seen that. But let's take a look at this early expansion. First off, I'd like to quote some verses composed by a member of the 1636 embassy from Holstein, Schleswig-Holstein, to Russia, an account of which was published by one of the participants, Adam Orleanius, in 1647. And uh, this was also cited in Samuel H. Barron, The Travels of Orleanius in 17th Century Russia, published by Stanford University Press, but um, this is something that we need to start with. A nice little Western perspective here. Quote, Churches, icons, crosses, bells, painted whores, and garlic smells. Wine and vodka everywhere. This is Moscow's daily face. To loiter in the market air. To bathe in common, bodies bare. To sleep by day and gorge by night. To belch and fart is their delight. Thieving, murdering, fornication are so common in this nation. No one thinks a brow to raise. Such are Moscow's sordid days. And these lines convey some of the, well, very commonly held Western European perceptions of the state of, uh, well, Russian society and culture in the 17th century, and, well, a bit later than that as well, and, in general, a lot of people in the West tend to think that Eastern Europeans are kind of a crazy-ass bastards in general, and I've seen some things, but whatever the backward habits of the Russians, the backwards being in quotes here, they had, much like their West European contemporaries, state and military organizations that were sufficiently well-developed to allow them to participate in the, well, whole colonial expansion of European states that was well underway by the mid-16th century. After all, after all, Russia has always wanted to be a great empire, and they always have had these ambitions, and they've tried to be as great as they can be, and they always wanted to play the colonial game as well. And then, at the beginning of their colonization, this is the Russian Empire who'd forge, possibly, if not the longest-lived, then certainly, at this point, the largest state the world ever has seen. Like I said, during the Soviet era, they were one-sixth of the planet, now Russia is one-eighth of the planet, and if you measure uh, state success in the amount of territory that they hold, then Russia is clearly, well, winners. They have a lot of internal troubles, and, well, their population is half that, less than half that of the United States, and is compatible to that of Mexico, and I think Mexico even has a bit larger one. Still, it, um, it hardly is mentioning here that when a polity state is accumulating large tracts of land, it will, obviously, encounter other cultural entities, and this is what we mentioned in part one, but now I'm trying to combine all the other articles together to explain this a bit. And at this point, take a look that the Russian Empire subjugated these people and how they did that. See, just like the other, and I quote from the Canadian paper now that I mentioned at the beginning, quote, Like other contemporary empire builders, England, France, Spain, Portugal, and the Dutch, the Russians encountered many peoples who were indigenous to the territories Moscow was exploring and claiming as their own. 
And like the groups which these contemporaries came into contact, the Russians encountered people who varied wildly in their political, economic and social development, and structures from small, loosely affiliated clan and tribal units, to larger, more organized and cohesive systems. See, that's the thing. Uh, if you remember, well, I, I don't know if I've talked about this in previous episodes, but Russia was under the Mongol Empire for a long while, so they had this express hostility towards the eastern peoples, you know, because they were under the so-called Mongol Tartar yoke. While not always considered in the context of colonization, Muscovy at the time, not yet Russia, was clearly this participant in the colonial expansions. And they embarked on these colonial adventures where the costs of men and material that would be involved. And they were familiar with the administration of lands, and uh, they had a lot of precedence for expansionist activity. For several centuries prior to crossing the Ural Mountains, the principalities of Rus gradually had been expanding their borders. For most of them, the Mongol invasion of the 13th century put a halt on any, well, large-scale growth and, well, expansion that lasted for about 200 years. If it had not, the near-constant interfighting among the family there, among the Grand Princes for supremacy over all the principalities of Rus, yeah, I think that would kind of stop them as well. Indeed, even after the first victory by Russian forces over the Golden Horde, the Altai Orda, in 1380, and the continued weakening of the Mongol power influence afterwards, territorial growth was very slow, because, well, they liked to bash each other's heads in as much as they liked to fight against Mongols. Nevertheless, Novgorod, which was, well, promptly destroyed later, remained comparatively free of the so-called Mongol yoke, and as a result of its involvement in the Hanseatic League and its highly developed commercial system, Novgorod city was spurred to explore and exploit the vast regions in the north of Rus. They are the beginnings of everything. The search for furs and precious metals in unknown lands eventually, and inevitably, brought Novgorod into contact with peoples native to the regions being explored. And then they killed them. And traded with them. And killed them again. Because, well, that's what you do. Over time, Novgorod developed techniques in, well, in accord with its economic goals and their military limitations that, well, at the most, allowed for the people living there in the very north, because, well, we haven't really expanded into Arkhangelsk, or Archangel in English. I, I really love the name Archangel. It's an amazing, uh, amazing name for the place above there. That allow these uh, people to serve Novgorod's commercial interests. And due to the fact that Novgorod was basically a Vecha Republic, a merchant republic with rich nobles, it kind of attempted to at least minimize native hostility in the Novgorodian presence. But that's Novgorod, where uh, we're going to be talking about Moscow soon. This is kind of interesting because a lot of things happen afterwards when Moscovy happens. Because these things need to change. And now I want to turn a bit to the 1980s article before we start talking more about the colonization of Siberia. Because once again, and yes, this is a stupid tangent, and well, the book about Russian Alaska is huge, and we're talking about colonization efforts here. But... <laughs> As being primarily a Soviet history podcast, I like to talk a bit about Soviet historiography and, you know, how the Soviets wrote about all this stuff and why I'm actively trying not to use their sources for all of the situation here. 
Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media like Twitter where we are known as Eastern underscore Border and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. See, when you look at the Soviet sources of all this, because I wanted to look these up, yeah, there are a lot of dramatic and uh, contradictory interpretations that are, are just there. Uh, specifically in Soviet writings concerning all these relationships and bizarro situations and craziness that happens between Muscovite state and people who are doing the colonization and all the native populations. Because since, well, a lot more Soviet scholars have written on this subject, because, well, they wanted to portray them in their own light, and Western sources are few and far between, and I'm trying to use them, and because the writing of history, all this stuff has always been tied to the ambitions and policies of the state, and the generally declared quote-unquote truth, as it was in the Soviet Union, it's really difficult to sort out, even for me, what's the truth then? Therefore, I was looking at the Soviet sources, and I know the Soviet government policies during the times that this particular uh, piece of paper was written when they spoke about this, and it was kind of crazy. That is why I've chosen to try to avoid Soviet sources mostly, because there's a lot of headache when I'm working on, on Stalin already, and yes, yes, that's happening after these, and uh, probably going to be somewhere in between, because Stalin is not dead. Well, Stalin is dead, but the series isn't. But... It just boggled my mind. See, pre-revolutionary Russian historians, while often emphasizing the civilizing aspects of the, well, Muscovite and later Russian imperial contexts, sometimes actually described all this violence that I mentioned in the part one, right now at the beginning of the show, with which many peoples were brought in the Russian fold and all this stuff. They, uh, they condemned the violence too often, and these people who were educated off, they were sometimes even anti-Tsarist, and they were not just, well, let's just say history wasn't written just from the perspective of Tsarist Empire. However, following the revolution in 1917, one of the primary objectives of the Bolshevik government was the maintenance of the state within the same boundaries as the former Tsarist Empire. 
as you've probably heard on my Lennon series, they really wanted to figure out what to do with all these people. And one of the greatest threats of the realization of this goal was so-called quote-unquote great Russian chauvinism, by which was meant the tendency of Russians to adopt a superior or, well, haughty and mighty attitude towards non-Russians and dominate them in politically and economically, which they also did in, well, all throughout the Soviet Union. And to an extent they do that now, uh, because if you look at Tatarstan, which is one of the regions that was colonized, in all this period that we're going to be talking about, and all this situation here that happens when uh, the Russians move eastwards, yeah, their language is still prohibited to be taught in official schools, and it's a, it's a massive mess. And, um, and party leaders in the USSR, in the early USSR, who repeatedly addressed the problem, Stalin among them, mind you, basically admitted that uh, hatreds between the peoples of the former Russian Empire were in fact, well, still strong enough to jeopardize the entire revolutionary program. And let me just, just remind you that, from the series, why this is still connected to this day, is the fact that this solution, which is formulated under Lenin's nationality policy, was uh, the creation of a nice little myth that was amazing and through which we lived throughout all the Soviet era that came to be known as the friendship or awesome huge friendship of peoples. See, initially, Bolshevik historians like the political counterparts in the Communist Party saw nothing but unmitigated evil in their empire's colonial past. Their works were characterized by extremely harsh judgments of colonial and imperial Russia, institutions, leaders, everyone who worked there, basically death was artists scum, right? Redeeming qualities were declared to be virtually non-existent, and non-Russians were said to have reaped no rewards from their association with Russians. For example, uh, the dominant historian of the uh, early Russian uh, period, Prokrovsky, whom I used a lot, who, by the way, may be considered one of the most vitriolic and angry and bashing uh, of the anti-Zarist historians, and, and he basically just uses history to bash the Tsar in this early period, which is, well, you know, understandable. The man didn't want to get uh, shot or, uh, well... He didn't want to have a nice meeting with the nice men. If you, if you know what's good for you, you'll just write what's been told. This is again another problem of all this historiography. He acknowledged, quote, that only the revolution could serve as a compensation for all the suffering these people had endured, end quote. And the revolution was obviously portrayed as a grand dividing line. Before it, national hatreds were everywhere. After the revolution, at least on paper, the party's nationality policy created a friendship of peoples in the context of a new and awesome and great historical Soviet entity, a multinational state utterly devoid of national hatreds and hostilities, because that is obviously true and not a nice little lie of propaganda that happened because you were also oppressed by the Russian colonialism. And like I said, this is all going to make sense when we get to Russian Alaska. It's just that, uh, you know, you read a book and then you understand that sometimes... Sometimes you just want to make a better series, the more interesting one, than the boats, which ended up kind of being uh, terrible. So I'm doing this right. I'm doing this right and making it clear by delving through the sources and everything. That is why, well, for the first half of May, you didn't really have episodes. I was preparing for this. In the 1930s, under increasing party supervision, the history of the Soviet Union and its peoples began to be rewritten. 
The determinist guidelines laid down by Marx and Engels, best buddies for life, no party like the Communist Party, uh, hashtag party time, were the blueprints used by the Soviet historians and the laws of historical development. And these offered the key to a scientific <clears throat> three exclamation parts quote un unquote little slow clap interpretation of, well, everything that happened there. And with the respective relationships between Russians and non-Russians, this new history was designed to support governmental efforts to solve these, quote, lingering nationality problems. To that end, post-revolutionary assertions of the friendship of peoples, which totally were real and not invented just to advance Lenin's political line, of course, these were extended to pre-revolution times, thus, well, refuting the notion of 1917 as dividing line. Indeed, uh, it contradicted Stalin himself, by the way. Uncle Joe was a bit angry. Who in the mid-30s spoke of, quote, the friendship between the peoples of the Soviet Union as a great and serious conquest of the party, and referred to it not as an accomplishment, but as a task yet to be finished. And this new interpretation maintained that there had never been hostility between the peoples who constituted the Soviet Union. Everyone was happy because they were conquered. The end result of such interpretations was hoped would be that the Soviet peoples would not only cease to feel national hatreds, but believe that they had never existed at all. The Russian conquests were described as essentially defensive measures mounted to prevent either aggression from foreign enemies who threatened to conquer the non-Russians or to protect them from their own kind of, you know, interfighting. Furthermore, most annexations of indigenous people were said to have been carried out voluntarily with no hints of violence, at the request of annexed populations. Uh, see Afghanistan 1979, see Crimea 2014, see Baltic States 1940. Uh, I'm not putting any, any relevant things here. Nope, nope, this is not a historical trend. La -da -da. <clears throat> of course, yeah, well, you know, the more you read, the more you kind of can put stuff together about the continuity of, of some things. Resistance movements and revolts, like I mentioned in the first part where the Chukchi actually fought back, were depicted at first as attempts by feudal leaders without mass support to recover their old privileges. Later, especially from the late 1940s and onwards, these were expressed more clearly in class terms, whereby the lack of mass support was attributed to some sense of class affinity between the average non-Russian and the Russian common soldier and peasant. This, in turn, denied the early Soviets' view that all non-Russians hated all Russians impartially. Thus, you know, they posted that the non-Russians, who were basically being conquered at this point, um, <clears throat> did not fight with the Russian per se, but with his class enemy, who happened to be a Russian. The motivations for Russia's acquisitions were proclaimed to be of an altruistic nature and resistance to be response of a selfish reactionary minority. Paradoxically, Henry Simmel's struggle directed at any power other than Russia was portrayed, obviously, as a popular fight for the preservation of freedom and self-determination. In any event, it was asserted that, left to their own devices, none of their non-Russian peoples had been in a position to maintain their independence and to form a viable state. That, by the way, applies not only to Siberia, it also applies to, well, early 18th century conquests, such as people here in the Baltics. And to this day, if I post something on the internet about how Latvia was conquered and how Baltics were annexed, there are a lot of people who state that 
you are not a viable state, you only got to pick whom to serve, and Russians are just saving you from the foul Westerners who just, well, would exploit you even worse than that. And that's not a joke, that's a, that's a concept that is propagated by, by a lot of propaganda here. This is why I'm taking this episode to explain at least the beginnings of this Russian colonialism and where we'll be going with this, but we will also... We'll also get into the fun stuff, but I think that it's just better get a lot of stuff out of the way, to put this into the Soviet context as well, and to just vent my anger about all the situation before I get to the funny stories, because if I just go into the funny stories, then I... I just don't want to make a nice little Disney portrayal of happy people, and I don't want to... Well, in this case, I literally don't want to whitewash history, because... A lot of people there truly suffered, and uh, let's just get out to the brutal stuff first. And yeah, apparently according to Soviet authors about this whole situation, the opinions were simply annexation by Russia, or defeat at the hands of an enemy, which it was implicitly understood might be anyone but Russia. Like I said, applies to Baltics as well. Annexation was deemed to be progressive for several reasons. While instances of Tsarist oppression were acknowledged, after all, the Tsar and his generals were the class enemies of the non-Russian masses, it was thought much better than the feudal oppression or internal strife. Over time, the Russians brought improvements in agriculture, increased trade, and later, industrialization and railroads opened world markets to many non-Russians, all of which led to higher standards of living. The Russians took the initiative in educating their new subjects, even putting into writing for the first time the languages of several Siberian tribes. And... That was the Soviet thing, and if you remember, in one of my Stalin episodes, yeah, Stalin really told people how to read by giving them only brutal Stalinist propaganda and NKVD documents to read, which is amazing. And the ultimate belief in Russia was that the benefit of union with Russia was that it put all these people on the road to revolution. Because the revolution, in Soviet authors' minds, was just the greatest thing ever to happen to literally anyone. The advent of World War II brought kind of the reinterpretation of Russia's colonial past to a conclusion. The need to instill a sense of patriotism in all the nice peoples of the USSR so that the war might be successfully prosecuted was paramount. They really needed to punch through and make sure that everyone stands united. No longer were animosities between peoples merely downplayed or expressed in class terms. If they could not be thoroughly reconciled to the party line, they were omitted completely from any part of writing. What remains is a catalogue of, well, um, constantly cordial relations between Russians and non-Russians that extend forever behind, you know, uh, starting with World War II, that is, there is no conflict, there is no conquest, there is just utterly and completely peace, because you need to win World War II. Quite important, right? The benefits, real and, uh, <clears throat> quote-unquote, otherwise, that come from the latter through the association with the kind of the, the whole association with everything, received even greater emphasis. This position was kind of consolidated in the first years after the war, and from the early 50s, Stalin's death, basically, until the USSR's end in 1981, was the thing. It was how you wrote about everything. World War II shaped all of this. And I've dug through these documents and, well, it's not really pretty. 
So, in the historiography of Russian and Russian relations with the boundaries of the Russian Soviet Empire, everyone was nice and peachy at all times, and constantly everyone was, like, looking at the Russians as the best people ever, even though they've come and conquered us, and, well, way nobody, no one cared, and, yeah, we were better off being conquered by Russians anyways, because otherwise we could get conquered by someone else, and that would be bad, as that would make sure revolution wouldn't come to us. There's a bunch of asterisks there, and I hope you understood my uh, irony here. The evident irony is that this final interpretation is the very strongly hints at elements of Russian superiority and leadership. In case that wasn't obvious, I'm literally being Captain Obvious and pointing it out at you. Hey, look, they invented a colonial policy which paints Russians as the ultimate good guys and everyone who were annexed and raped and murdered were just welcome with arms wide open. But like I said, this is the darkest episode of the series. We'll, we'll get to a bit more positive stuff later. Which in practice, by the way, if you think about this, kind of negates the theoretical equality of peoples emphasized by the communists. Because according to communists, destroy the colonial past. Except Russia has no colonial past. Russia never colonized anyone. Except Alaska should be ours once again. This whole thing was evidenced by the term Starshi Brat. Elder brother... Which even today, uh, a lot of Russians use when talking about Ukrainians about Russians, and used to, uh, when speaking about the Baltic peoples, Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, sometimes even Polish people, uh, but that's kind of run out of fashion because, well, they understood that maybe they should kind of limit their ambitions a bit. Uh, but this elder brother thing, this kind of, well, denoted Russian superiority and originated among and was given kind of power and as a symbol by the Tsar's apologists, trying to convince the colonial peoples of the Russian mm -mm, civilizing mission that it's, a, it's best for them to just basically be subjugated. The expression itself, by the way, began to reappear during World War II, subsequently becoming an, quote, <clears throat> and this is just a bit um, stupid, and this comes from the same, um, from the weird Soviet historians, quote, uh... Honored term among non-Russians who ritualistically expressed their gratitude to the Russian people for help in the past and present. I uh, puked a bit in my mouth right now, but uh, but yeah, this is this is why I am trying to put this all in one episode. Thus, this is quite apparent that uh, until a final policy had been established concerning the nature of historical Russian and Russian relations, a a certain schizophrenia existed in the body of Soviet historiography on the topic. It's quite hard to read a bunch of books about all the colonization efforts when it all comes down to the fact that and then all Latvians just welcomed all the Russians as their elder brothers and they felt super happy about being oppressed because it totally, totally makes you feel happy. Ironically, by the way, it was the same Pokrovsky whom I quoted earlier in this uh, episode, who for later Soviet historians became the scapegoat for the wrong views of his day about the pre-revolutionary relations between Russians and non-Russians. However, nonetheless, few historians who wrote prior to the change in attitude in the 1930s survived the post-war reinterpretations without their works, or themselves being rendered obsolete, but that was quite a bad thing, because, well, a lot of them kind of died. One of the few of these historians whose works emerged unscathed, was uh, one Barushkin. He wrote extensively on the Russian colonization of Siberia, and like his other 1920s people who lived there, he indicted Tsarist colonialism for often being brutal and exhibiting little in the way of cooperation between Russians and natives. Quote, 
Siberian towns in the 17th century were pursuing one aim. They were to serve as military administrative centers for the collection of fur tribute from the natives and for further seizures of, quote, hostile, end quote, territory. However, he was less polemical than the writers and more kind of um, loose and wild in his use of archivical sources to support his arguments. And perhaps most importantly, this guy defended his position even after World War II, making only limited compromise with his new views, before he uh, splattered away into the great communist unknown in 1950. This is why um, I'm not going to be using much of Soviet sources here, but I'll be relying mostly on, well, modern sources, and every time I'm going to be speaking about the subject, including my Russian-written book, because it has a lot of fun studies, but it omits a lot of the terribleness that comes from being colonized. It's created as a fun adventure book. Russian Wild West, Alaska, woo, organized crime, crazy devilry, and all these shenanigans. Yeah, but how you get that, and in a way, it presents something similar like Wild West movies by the Wild West. Land of adventure, and land of, well, opportunity and everything, and it just completely passes over all the oppression and, well, all the more dark stuff of everything. That's why... I wanted to dedicate this episode of Russian Alaska, which is going to be Russian Pacific exploration, basically, to all this more darker subject. In the next episode of this, uh, we shall be going from... Well, we ended up, historically, with Novgorod claiming the north. Next episode, we're going to be looking at how, well, Muscovy, at that point, became Russian, and just splattered all over itself to the Pacific Ocean, and then we are get to Alaska itself. But yeah, nothing of this is going to be that dark, and just that before we get into the we get to the really fun stuff, gotta speak about a bit of sadness too. Anyhow, hope you enjoyed this episode. Please support the show. If you're a Patreon, thank you and support us. I'll be recording a nice little ad about uh, about the coffee that we received. If you listen to the Minnesota, we we have a bunch of coffee beans from uh, my friend's little shop, who uh, is now opening a shop on Amazon. And as soon as he does it, we'll be running ads on him because he's my real-life buddy and we kind of want to support him and his coffee is really great and I've been enjoying that while recording this episode and we're writing the script for it. But that comes in the next episode at the beginning of June. Anyway, the Sadanya Tvarishi, and I hope you like this. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, The Eastern Border. LV, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The eastern border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.